Ladies and gentlemen, today's show, we uh, talk to a certified financial planner. Uh, he's got an alphabet soup of uh, designations uh, after his name. And it's important we, we get into talking about that and why people get intimidated when talking to uh, financial planners. And perhaps even talking about the benefits of dealing with one versus another. But we, we get into a lot of different uh, areas, including... Uh, talking about uh, some of our uh, political landscape in Canada. Um, and we even talk a little bit about podcasting and the benefits in business. And so on today's show, we have Ryan Morrissey and uh, talking about wealth management. On the show today, we have Ryan Morrissey, a certified financial planner, wealth management specialist, we're going to talk about uh, retirement, and he is the man uh, to talk about that. So, uh, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Thanks for having me, Neil, and looking forward uh, to it. Yeah. So, okay, look, obviously, we're, we're going to get into talking about retirement planning, and uh, literally, your slogan is, let me show you how to retire. And so... Um, we're, we're going to be talking about money, and I love the sound of that. Um, my specialty is real estate and real estate investing, and so I am really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on all things investing and uh, how you uh, how you really help clients move through that through that those stages. But sure. I also want to get to know a little bit about you. You're Right now, you are in uh, your firm is in New Haven, Connecticut. Am I correct there? No, North Haven, yeah. North One Haven, sorry, North Haven. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, but where are you? Uh, are you originally from Connecticut? I am. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm actually from Cheshire, Connecticut, a couple of towns over, and grew up there, and um, lived in another town just a couple of towns over, Hamden, before that, and. After high school, went to high school in Cheshire. After high school, I went to the University of Delaware, where I studied economics. I'm a big golf nut, so I was on the men's golf team. You know, yeah. Division one golf, big time. So, and uh, after school, uh, I took a job with Morgan Stanley, where I spent nine years in Delaware. Well, about seven and a half, actually. I stayed in around school at University of Delaware, and then after that, I moved back to Connecticut. Been a couple more years in Morgan Stanley before I went off and started my own company. Wow. Okay. So, well, Morgan Stanley is a, a heavy hitter in the financial industry. They are, yeah. Yeah. And um, if I'm not mistaken, Morgan Stanley has, uh, yeah, they've they've sent some big, big heavy hitters to all different areas of uh, finance. And um, am am I correct in saying that? Uh, uh, some of the Fed chairs have been uh, former Morgan Stanley. Um, I'm not I sure. I think much? there was one from Merrill Lynch, John Thane, right? That was yeah a couple of years ago, and then uh, was it Paulson who was the Fed during the 2008 financial crisis? I think he came from Goldman Sachs. Goldman it could Sachs, be in the past, right. not like of recent memory. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a major, yeah. it's a very yeah. large company. It's like one of the biggest wealth management companies out there. Okay, great. Yeah, so it was a good, it was a good place to go. I mean, it was, yeah. when, I was when I was getting out of school, I, I, I had actually had an internship for a financial advisor 
uh, between my junior and senior year in college. And I didn't, you know, it wasn't something on my radar that I was interested in doing. But after working there for the summer, I really got interested in it. And I thought it was something that I wanted to do. And the advice that he gave me was try to go to get a job with like Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or one of these big firms at the time that had a very large training program. Yes. Because that was the key, right? Make sure that you're going to get the right training and knowledge so that you can right. do the best for your clients and be as equipped as you can to, to go forward. So right. it just happened that on the campus of college, I didn't even know there was a Morgan Stanley office that I <laughs> you know, had walked by many times, never even noticed. Yeah. So I sent out a lot of letters and to different you know branches and they responded that they wanted to talk to me and I ended up getting a job offer there. So I took yeah. the job. Yeah. Now, okay. Now I got to ask because I don't think any kid growing up uh, thinks I want to go study economics and <laughs> go uh, go work for Morgan Stanley. Although some probably do. Sure. Yeah. Uh, what 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 was the dream before economics? Well, I'm pretty passionate about golf, so I think at one point I hoped I could be a professional golfer. Um, oh. But you know, I think I realized like maybe like early on in college, like yeah, that wasn't going to happen. So <laughs> it was time to figure out how can I, how can I keep a roof over my head? Right. And, um, right. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, in college I wasn't, uh, even the way my mind works now, I'm definitely more of an in the moment type person. So yeah. I'm not like yeah. thinking of the future, like a lot of my time, like some people are always kind of living in the future. Right. So I didn't really, I didn't really have a lot of thoughts of what I was going to do. I was just focused on doing well at what I was doing at, you know, the current courses I had and the current priorities I had to deal with. Yeah. Uh, well, let me, let me throw a curveball at you. Um, so if, uh, while you were in, while you were in college, uh, studying, what's, what's one thing that you did that, uh, you probably don't want the financial industry to find out about? <laughs> well, uh, Neil, I don't know if I want anyone to find out about those things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, you got you got to throw a, a curveball every now and then. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so you're you're there. You're studying, and I, I. But I'm curious about how you made the shift because we we definitely want to. You know this this podcast is about leadership, and sure. You know, as people are trying to, especially the younger. Uh, are trying to figure out transitioning is a difficult thing right now. Um, I've got teenagers myself and trying to figure out, oh, what, what do I have to do? What am I going to do? It, it can be a bit of a difficult shift. Can you say something about what led you from PGA golf <laughs> to uh, <laughs> how, what, what triggered there that, that helped you in the transition? Uh, I mean, it's definitely hard. I mean, I, you know, it was just kind of expected, like, you know, all my friends that I was friends with in college, when you get to be a senior, all the interviews start and the companies that are, you know, big, well-known companies are recruiting people on campuses. And so I'd had, you know, friends, oh, I had an interview with this firm and that firm. So I think part of it was just competition that you're, you want to do as well as your friends and, and, you know, knowing that, hey, your college is over time to get a job. Um, so I didn't think part of it was even that I had had a choice. You just, it's what you do. Um, and, and, but for me, I mean, the good thing was that I, I really enjoyed what I was studying and what I was learning. So it was something that I wanted to continue with. 
I think there's mm-hmm. probably definitely jobs that people take because they don't really know much about it. And then they get into it and they're like, oh, this is really not something I want to do. So, mm-hmm. you know, now I got to figure out my next my next move. But for me, this is the only job I've ever had uh, yeah. as a financial advisor for tw- over 20 years. And it's something, you know, there's definitely challenges with, with any profession and job, but it's something that I can't see myself doing anything else at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, is that because uh, y- you just have that level of confidence in in what you're doing or um, because the uh, the dream of PGA is might be a little bit too <laughs> difficult with uh, Tiger on the uh, back back in golf. Yeah, I mean the fact that I couldn't beat Tiger, I knew that. All right, I got no shot shot here. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and and it's interesting because I I know that as human beings, we're always in a state of some type of transition. They say typically every eighteen months, something major is going to happen in your life. And you've got to transition through something. And in my case, uh, recently had some health concerns. And we also got a, we adopted a 13 month old dog. You might hear him in the background. Uh, my apologies. But because there's always sort of some transition, we as human beings can also, you know, if there isn't enough, we can go take some on. And that might be a job change moving into a new sure. career or, um, or for yourself, uh, going from working at Morgan Stanley to going and opening up your own firm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to speak about the transition, I mean, I can think back when I <clears throat> first started Morgan Stanley, like you're not used to as a college student. I mean, college is pretty easy as far as the time commitment, right? You have classes like two or three hours a day and then the rest of your day is free. And now you're, going to an office that you're working from, you know, eight or eight 30 in the morning till five or five 30. And it's like, uh, gets, even if you're passionate about it, it gets kind of monotonous. And, mm. you know, I remember like some days I just had to go like for a walk, you know, and it was nice out just to get out of the office because you're just, you're not used to that. So yeah, it's definitely a transition for me. It was then. And, you know, but I guess you kind of adjust to it and mm-hmm. you get used to putting in the hours that you're going to need to in any, any profession or career you're going to pursue. Right. Right. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, for myself, I was working for the federal government and then I transitioned into my own business. And what I, what I really saw was the opportunity to uh, work for myself and know that my efforts were, and and it wasn't even as much as the, it was going to reward me, which they it has, but but rather knowing that I was going to live and die by my sword, there was something about that that really resonated for me. And uh, was that was there something there for you that that excited you about making that tr- transition from uh, from working for Morgan Stanley to opening up your own firm? Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's. You know, I think the unique thing about being a financial advisor, for for me at least, it's changed a little bit. Is that when I started, I had a small base salary that was only supposed to last for a year, but because of nine eleven, it ended up lasting a lot longer. Um, yeah. But I still had to go out and generate all my own clients. So in the sense that from day one, like yes, I was living on the fruits of my labor because yeah. if I didn't generate enough clients to create a sustainable business, I wasn't going to be in business at a certain point, you know? Um, so that was always continuing. But the thing about going out and starting my own business was that 
I just, the, the more I was in the business, the more I learned about it and the, the inner workings and realizing that a lot of the services I was getting from Morgan Stanley were things that I could do on my own. And working for any large brokerage firm like Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch, they keep a very large percentage of the fees that your clients pay you to, you know, that they use to pay for the overhead that you need to run your business. But you don't have a choice as to where those dollars are being spent. Maybe right. you don't need as nice an office as they have, or you need better technology than they're giving you, or you need different staff than they're providing. You don't really have any choice in that matter. Yeah. So that was one of the main reasons why I wanted to go out on my own so that I could have more control over how that money, you know, a large portion of the money my clients were paying me was being spent on the business to make sure I was given the best experience for the client and, you know, to be able to continue to grow the business the way I, I saw that I wanted to grow it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting. I can't say that it, it was quite that, that way for me, uh, obviously working for the federal government, but uh, one of the things it was, I didn't really see myself working in the financial sector, um, you know, and getting into investments. One of the things that coming from my background, very different from yours, um, you know, sort of uh, a street thug at one point luckily okay. never never got a uh, ne never got in trouble with the cops uh, no record which allowed me to transition my life quite frankly that that was the blessing in all of that um but it was i would i just wasn't sure what what was next and sure. part of it was transitioning into just regular life and when I did transition into my own business, what I really saw was was that opportunity to work for myself, work in an area that I like, real estate. And so I got into um, you know residential financing, and then realized this whole world of investments was I could actually offer to other people and didn't have to just keep it for myself. Real estate investing for myself, I thought was amazing. But sure. now you teach a, a whole different brand of uh, investment strategy. I want to dig into that a little bit. And when when you talk wealth management, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, right. So I think what it means like to the industry is that you have investing, right? And that's a whole other, that could be many, many podcasts, you know, years, right? And then you have financial planning, which is figuring out your, where you should be putting your money, how much you should be saving, right? Your what's best for your taxes and college planning. And the combination of those two services is what wealth management is. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that you'd go, there are people that just did financial planning. Like in a, you know, you'd pay them an hourly or flat fee. They'd help you with your financial planning, but they wouldn't help you invest your money. And then yeah. there were people that just invested your money. They weren't yeah. going to tell you really where it should be invested or should you put it in your 401k or your Roth IRA. They were just they just had an investment strategy that you could put money in and they were going to pick your stocks or your mutual funds for you. Yeah. So the, well, the combination I just of those is what wealth management is technically. I you, you just uh you just pulled out a, a no you didn't pull out the bee in my bonnet but uh I've got a there's one bone I really have to pick cuz I think there is a clear clear conflict of interest interest in the industry in that so many um, financial planners we see, oftentimes their benefit strictly comes from, you know, the products that they're selling. Sure. And, um, and I'm like, 
hang on a second. If if they're going to make money off of what they're and and oftentimes you can see that in on our side in the mortgage industry. Yeah. And where depending on what bank is going to give what commissions, how do you know that this individual that's supposed to be working for you is giving you the best product for you and not giving you what is going to give them the the greatest commission? Do what do you have to say about that when when it comes to the uh, financial planning space? No, that's a great question. Is so the the thing I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the in the U.S., like I'm considered a fee only financial planner. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that I'm only paid by the fees that my clients pay me. That's my only form of compensation. If I tell my client go to this bank down the street and refinance your mortgage, I don't get a kickback. If I right. if I tell them you need this life insurance go out and buy this life insurance. I don't get a kickback. So that's what you really have to look for. If you're looking to minimize as many of the conflicts of interest as possible, that's mm. what you're looking for. Um, whereas the majority of financial advisors, and that term financial advisor is very loosely used. It used to be that you had to be a fiduciary, which is what yeah. I'm talking about, yeah. which a fee-only yeah. financial planner is. Fiduciary being they put you know their client's interest ahead of their own and disclose any conflicts. But now you don't, you know, anybody can use that that title. So you really have to understand like the person you're working with and and researching like how they're getting paid. Oh, okay. Well, that that's interesting. In in Canada, you're not allowed to use that title without actually having the title. And and you've clearly got a whole bunch of letters after your name. Um, and <laughs> yeah. uh, can can you perhaps explain some of those designations as well? Yeah, sure. take a so, drink, uh, ladies and gentlemen, just before he starts into it, because it's going to be a bit. Yeah, it's going to be a while. So get comfortable. <laughs> so, yeah, again, there's another problem. Well, it, in it's intimidating, right? It's intimidating when you, you, you know, you talk to uh, someone about finances, first of all. And then when you see all the letters and everything, yeah. you're like, I don't know, what am I allowed to ask him? And what am I not? And what am I going to look foolish for? Talking sure. About? So, no, it is. And yeah, I mean, a lot of times jokingly, and it's called like the alphabet soup of financial designations, right? That's what they yeah. are. The, the letters that you see after a financial advisor's name. Yeah. Um, so the front one that's probably the most prominent and the most relevant is uh, I'm a certified financial planner, which we mentioned at the beginning of the show, yeah. CFP. Yeah. yeah. So that is an exam that usually takes people a couple years to go through all the steps to be able to complete. And then it also has a fiduciary requirement that you're supposed to operate as a fiduciary at all times. Right. Um, and it's definitely the hardest to attain. So that's really like, if you're looking for one that someone has, that would be the one to look for because right. it is so difficult to attain and it has that fiduciary component. There's about almost like 90,000 people that have gone through the process of becoming a certified financial planner. I don't know if that's worldwide or in the U.S., uh, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And then like, there's a lot of other ones that I have, like a CLU is a chartered life underwriter that's dealing with life insurance and insurances. Okay. Yeah. CMFC is a chartered mutual fund consultant, like dealing with setting up portfolios. And uh, CHFC is a chartered financial consultant, which is like financial planning, a little bit of the stuff that the CFP doesn't cover, even though it's very comprehensive. It doesn't yeah. cover like everything. So, I mean, there's there's hundreds of these other designations that you can go and they're all good, right? It definitely yeah. is not a bad thing that someone has other ones besides the CFP. 
The only point I make is that the CFP is the only one that has a fiduciary oath. None of these other ones do. So they will actually strip people's um, credentials from them. Every, every year you'll read about maybe 30 to 50 people that the CFP board has re removed their ability to use the CFP designation because mm -hmm. they either violated the ethical requirements right. or they, you know, um, did something bad to a client. Like, like you said, like, uh, invested their money horribly or stole their money or, you know, and they're just, yeah. they, they can't use the designation anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it can be really confusing for people. And, uh, it, it's always when, when people ask me about all these designations and how do I know? And yeah. oftentimes, you know, here in Canada, I'm sure in the States as well, one of the benefits is that, you have governing bodies that you can verify whether someone actually has uh, these certain designations. And I, I love to tell people, you know, here's our, here's our securities commission, go check it up. You can find my yeah. name and, and be able to do that. And people can do here. the same thing yeah. with you. But now in the midst of that, how do people still run into and come up against like the Bernie Madoffs? Like, Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, the financial in in the U.S. it's FINRA, Financial Regulatory Authority, and then you also have like every state has its own like banking department that oversees yeah. advisors too. I think yeah. they probably need to do a little better job. And part of it's maybe not their fault. Maybe they don't have the budgets they need to. Um, but you know, yeah. I mean, you 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 need to you need to do a background check on whoever you're going to work with in the U.S. You either go to brokercheck.com or you can type in someone's name. And if they're a broker, it has everything. If they're a fee-only advisor like me, it would say that they're not registered and you then have to go to the, the SEC website, which is right. IAPD.com. And then from there, you can look them up to make sure they're they're licensed. And you can also, there's a report that you can read on them about you know what they offer and what they charge. Right. I mean, okay. the, the number one thing I would tell people is that if you want to minimize you know, as much of the conflicts work with a fee only planner. Um, mm -hmm. but there's always a conflict. And the conflict is that I only get paid if someone hires me. So right. that, that is the conflict that, you know, <laughs> if someone hires me, I'm getting paid. So if you <laughs> want to do it yourself, yes, there's a conflict. If you hire me, yes. so, you know, but that is the conflict. So there is there, no, you can't work with anyone who has no conflict because right there, if there's compensation involved, there's still a minor conflict. Right. Well, the the challenge that I think a, a lot of people run into is is very simple. You can go to certain advisors or um, certain planners, and what you're they're not going to charge you anything because they're going to get their compensation from the products that they that they refer to you, and as a result, the vast majority of people are going to. Go to, go in that direction. Hey, let me go here because sure, yeah, I don't have great. to pay anything. Right. You know, I go over here and and uh, I've got to pay this guy. And uh, who knows if he's going to give me good advice, right? That guy Ryan, I heard sure, about him. Yeah. You know, down the street. <laughs> uh, you know, he he actually wanted to be a golfer. I heard on a on a podcast. He didn't even <laughs> want to be in finance. So why would I hire that guy? That's right. Right. <laughs> but th this is the challenge um in the industry and uh we're i'm running into it right now where 
I'm working on a, a development and we're bringing in a surveyor, you know, for the land. Now, I've had to disclose to the real estate agent involved saying, do not let the sellers know who the surveyor is because he's from the location where they are. And, oh, yeah. uh, you, you know, uh, I, I don't want them talking to him and getting involved in any of that, right? Because it can create uh, conflict. So there's, you're right. Conflicts can be all over the place and it really is important for people to do their due diligence, which is nice to say. Um, and oftentimes it's easier to just do business with people that you like and maybe you've gotten to know and a recommendation from someone else. Um, and, That's and I get do, right. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't do the, it just takes a couple minutes to yeah. 10 minutes to do, look somebody up on Google and, Go to broker check or IAPD and, and and if you see a bunch of complaints, like yeah. because there can once somebody gets a complaint and it's over five thousand dollars of damages, even if the complaint is dismissed, it has to be recorded. Yeah. So if you see like a history of complaints for somebody, that probably means that they had a lot of other complaints that didn't even make it to that point. Mm. And so they're probably not somebody you want to work with. Um, right. You know, and it's it's always interesting when you see somebody that is you know has all these complaints and then they're still in the business it's that's another thing they probably should bar a lot of people that have a lot of complaints you know but it's yeah. hard to take someone's livelihood away from them i guess but right right if yeah. if they're not technically if they've not been indicted for something you know uh, people are allowed to complain i mean i had a well, these are complaints. I, I should say complaints yeah. that resulted in da damages being awarded. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah. Yes. Like, you yeah. can read about what happened, but if you see that, you know, oh, the complaint was uh, the client, you know, uh, lost $50,000 because their money was not invested the way they want. And then you say, see that it was settled for 40000 <laughs> Then there was, you know, there's an issue. Right. If it was dismissed, right. then yeah, there, it's probably just miscommunication or the client wasn't right. happy and they just wanted to complain. Yeah. Oh, wow. That yes, absolutely. And definitely sounds like something that uh, needs to be addressed. If if some if that can happen, and people can hold their license after, you know, multiple, yeah, <laughs> multiple offenses, that is a concern. We see that in so many industries where even the banking sector, for that matter, where you can have all sorts of violations, you pay the fines and Everybody yeah. carries on and yep. and they don't even think about it. Yeah. Now, with you being in the U.S., can I get you your personal opinion, slightly slightly uh, financial opinion on something that's going on up here in Canada? Do you mind? <laughs> the truckers. <laughs> the truckers. They yeah. are right now, and and I don't care whether you side with the truckers or don't side with the truckers, but. Uh, we have now um, passed, you know, the we have the Emergencies Act, which uh, is now allowing the government to enable, empower the financial industry, the banks, sure. to actually freeze people's accounts and uh, and even and even um, take the money and redistribute it if they feel like. Oh, I didn't realize they could take the money too. Okay. Yeah. Wow. If they feel like it, it, it's not appropriate or, you know, there's, there's all the, uh, the stuff there, but just freezing the accounts 
on their own discretion, you know, if they think that someone's wow. uh, falling into that category. Um, I, to me, here in Canada, that seems like a huge, a huge violation. What do you guys think about it uh, from the states watching this nonsense? I mean, I think that's pretty egregious that they could take someone's money um, mm -hmm. and distribute it to somebody else. Like, that's crazy. I think that's way over the line. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm definitely more of a minimalist when it comes to government. Um, you know, government's needed for certain functions, but yeah, I think government should have limitations, you know, to take your money and, and, yeah. you know, do some of these things they can do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, then it's like, where are we headed with this? So we headed to like where our government is controlling us and, you know, we don't yeah. really have control of our lives anymore. That's, you know, like the whole reason, like the U S was founded was because of that very reason to give yeah. people freedom. And so it is, it is definitely concerning to me. Yeah. 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 It, it, it really is even for myself watching this and, and my, uh, my daughters are like, are you, are you for the truckers convoy? <laughs> and, I, and I said, it, it has nothing to do with whether I, believe in the truckers convoy or not yeah um i said it what really comes down to is when your government can start freezing your accounts financial institutions can start freezing your accounts because they're they don't like what you're saying or you know yeah, that's literally that's a voice crazy. of opposition yeah and uh you know and now if the government had really even sat down with them to have a conversation about it that's one thing and and i think uh especially where my where my kids are involved they they don't know where some of these things come from they don't have the history on it they don't have the history on w how these countries were our countries of canada and the yeah and the states were even founded and how many other countries this happens and people you know have no ability to to do anything um you know to say anything and as a result what happens all the uh all the profitable money disappears from these countries and goes to somewhere else and you know along with anyone yeah. that can make money and so it, it's a slippery slope i think uh when people it start is yeah yeah hampering that way it's very concerning that i didn't realize they could do that um the emergency measures act which uh yeah replaces the the war measures act which interestingly <laughs> Justin, the last time the War Measures Act was uh, enacted was Justin Trudeau's father, uh, Pierre Trudeau, okay. uh, who used that, um, who yeah. happened to be friends with. Kind of reminds me of that. One of my favorite movies is V for Vendetta. Oh, yes. And I, I like it for a few reasons. One, the fight scenes are pretty incredible. You know, <laughs> the guy with knives fighting guys with machine guns. It's obviously pretty fictitious, but yeah, the belief, I mean, the whole premise is that yes, the government like gets to the point where it's like totalitarian, right? Tell yeah. you what to do. If you don't like it, put a bag over your head and nobody's going to see you ever again. And yeah. you know, there are governments that operate like that. And yeah. usually, you know, the Western countries are fighting to not make that happen. So it is yeah. scary if now we're even moving in, you know, a millimeter in that direction that we're going to tell people you can't say or do what you want. And, yeah. and if you don't like you, we're going to take your money and ruin your business or whatever, you know. 
Yeah. And and you're a father. The reality is, is that it's highly unlikely that we will see those types of moves within our lifetime. It's more likely that this is this is a slide that occurs for our kids or their kids um, in their lifetime. Right. And so it it's really something that uh, you want to do something about now before yeah. to that point. Right. Yeah. And whatever party it is, I mean, you know, no other political party should probably have that power to do that, <laughs> you know, right. Cause then they're going to, yeah. they're not going to be out of power ever. And they're just going to get more and more power. And to say absolute power or absolutely corrupts usually corrupts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, corrupts completely. So, uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, investments because I, I want to get to know a little bit more of your thought process you you normally um you deal with people that are 50 and over correct and, yes and and so oftentimes someone who's 50 and over they they've obviously lived a good chunk of life they've already uh, amassed a certain amount of wealth and now you're having this conversation with them for retirement probably because they're already having the conversation with themselves about uh, retirement planning. Uh, why, why wait till someone's 50 and over to have that conversation? Well, for me, um, you know, that was really the people that I felt I could help the most. Um, the training that I received initially at Morgan Stanley, like that's what I was really focused on. So I've just, you know, kind of stuck with that and, mm -hmm you know, that's really my, my niche. I mean, I know I've, I know a lot about social security, Medicare, long-term care, all these things kind of you think about in your fifties and sixties. So that's the niche that I've targeted. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. You don't want to wait until you're 50 and think about that. But for me, like in my business focus, that's, those are the folks that I, that I specialize in helping. Yeah. Now with, with uh, helping people with this retirement planning 50 and over, do does the conversation of cryptocurrency ever come up? Uh, not really. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think I've had one client ask me about investing in cryptocurrency. Um, <laughs> so do you think that that's going to be a conversation that needs to be had more often when it comes to investing? I mean, it's a good question it's hard to say, right? You're not going to know for a while whether it's a good decision to invest in it because, mm -hmm. right, you don't know for until it goes up. And if you had invested in cryptocurrency a couple months ago, you'd be pretty unhappy right now because it was at, if we just use Bitcoin, $60,000 a coin, and now it's down in the thir high 30s, low 40s, so, yeah. you know, pretty large decline. But if sitting here 10 years from now is a one Bitcoin going to be worth $100,000 or $200,000, then you're going to be pretty happy you bought it. It's just impossible to know. Yeah. But there's so many other things you can buy that you know, you know, within reasonable expectation what the future outcome is going to be that mm -hmm. I don't think you need to really hang your hat on your retirement success being from cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, so so let me ask this question because... If we now talk about stock market, one of the things that everybody and their monkey's uncle talks about is, uh, you know, put it in 30 years later, you know, you can pull it out. And so there's always this 
this long-term projection when it comes to stocks. Now you're you're dealing with someone that's already advanced in age, not old, but they're you know, if we're talking about 50 years of age or older, how does that change what someone should be looking at when it comes to wealth management portfolio? Sure. So, I mean, it really depends like when someone's planning to retire, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not planning to retire in 10 years, well, you probably should be fairly aggressive with your portfolio because you're not going to need any of your money for 10 years. And then even when you do need it, you're not going to need all your money on day one of retirement. You're going to figure out based on your health and you, how your money's invested, how much of your portfolio you can take out and live off of each year. And the rest of it is going to stay invested so that it keeps up with inflation and then it's there for you later on. Right. So, right. you know, most people should probably be at least, there's different rules of thumb out there about how much of your money should be invested in stocks. There used to be one rule of thumb that said, take your age, subtract it from 100. So if you're 50 years old, gives you 50. That's how much of your portfolio you should have in stocks. The rest okay. you should have in conservative investments, bonds, or cash. Mm -hmm. But that was done a number of years ago when people's life expectancy was lower. Now the belief is maybe you should use like 115 or 120. So mm -hmm. if let's say you use 120, the same 50-year-old, they should have 70% in stocks. That's probably like a, a good estimate, maybe between like 60 to 80%. Um, and, and, you know, why would you want to have any money in bonds right now in the, in the U S the, the kind of the, the benchmark for the bond market is the 10 year U S treasury. So anytime you turn on CNBC, you can see that it's hovering around 2%. That means mm. if you buy a 10 year U S government bond, you're going to earn 2% interest on the bond each year. That's mm -hmm. really not doing anything. If we know yeah. that inflation's right now is 7%, 6%. So the, the reason I'm telling you that is the more you have in bonds, the more you're going to lower your future return. And so then you'd have to ask yourself, why would I ever have any money in bonds? Well, it's there because when we do have stock market declines, if it happens within the, you know, you're retiring in five years, you don't want to see your portfolio lose a large percentage. And right. now you've got to sell things that are down in value to fund your retirement. So that's why right. you have money in bonds. It's like a, for your safe money, your mattress money. So that you've got, you know, a number of, if let's say you're retiring in five years, if you had five years of income in bonds, then you're good for five years. If the market crashes, you don't need to worry right. about it and you're going to worry about it, but you don't need to sell anything for five years. And most likely the average stock market decline is about five, it's about three and a half to four years. So your portfolio would have come back in value and you could then start re reselling stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What, so what's the biggest conversation that you have with clients when it comes to retirement planning? Well, usually the number one thing people want to know when they come to see me is when can I retire? Right. Because, you know, it's on their mind. Either they are kind of done with working, either they, they're not enjoying it anymore, or they have grandchildren that they want to spend time with, or they just want to do something else with their time. So trying to figure that out is one of the first things we help them do. And that's based on, you know, for everybody, everyone's different because everyone has different expenses and different things that they use their money for. Yeah. So if you've got higher expenses, you're going to need more money. If you've got lower expenses, you're going to need less money. Or if you're not looking to do a lot in retirement, you're going to need less money. So that's, it's working through that, you know, mathematically just figuring out, all right, 
What do they have saved up? Um, depending on how old they are, are they going to start collecting Social Security? Do they are they retiring with a company with a pension? So all these things factor into that, you know, those calculations. Mm. Well, the the biggest thing that I'm seeing right now is that, especially with COVID and what what all the lockdowns, and obviously we've had a lot more of them uh, up here in Canada than you guys have. Um, I mean, crying out loud, the Super Bowl. <laughs> you guys had the Super Bowl, and <laughs> there was no COVID at the Super Bowl, didn't you know? <laughs> yeah, they they put a didn't moratorium on COVID. <laughs> um, God, love it, love it. And but uh, meanwhile, here we still have uh, restrictions on how many people can go into buildings and restaurants. And anyways, we'll, we'll get into that. But yeah. Um, but with as a result of that, what we're finding is that more and more people are realizing that they want to be able to travel. They want to be able to enjoy their life, realizing how quickly yeah. it could, um, you know, things could change. And uh, and so that's really changing the demographic of of people that are starting to look at retirement and it's changing what they want to do in retirement. How does that, how, how are you seeing it play out in, in your world? I'm honestly, I haven't seen a lot of change to be honest for the people mm -hmm. that I encounter. And maybe that's just because of the, the demographic I target. But I mean, I just took on a new client the other day and I told them like, you can retire tomorrow. I mean, they're yeah. The husband, I think he's like 66 and the wife's like 64. But they said to me, no, we 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 want to keep working. You know, he's planning to work another year. I think his wife's going to work another year and a half. But these are people that they've got enough saved up. They could retire tomorrow, but they want to keep working. So, mm. but there's other people, yeah, that I've met with over the years that are like, get me out tomorrow. Like, <laughs> even, <laughs> even if I have to live on less, just get me out. Yeah. And, and some of them have really good, well-paying jobs, but they're just... They're just done, you know. They've yeah. they're just had enough, and the stress is too much. So, um, you know, everyone is different. Do Do you ever see the flip side where people have a lot of money but are afraid to do anything with it? Oh yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I'm. Sometimes I'm a little different than other advisors. Mom, mom, if you're listening, yeah. can you please uh, listen up here? All right. So, yes, mom, spend your money. Give Neil a, a lot of it. He needs it. <laughs> I've got four kids and a dog. <laughs> That's it. They need shoes, braces, you know, dog food now. There's clients I have, I mean, I that don't spend any of their money. And I tell them, listen, you know, you, sh you can be spending twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a year more than you're spending. Like, go spend this money because... If there are things you want to do, you're going to come to a point where you can't do them physically, possibly, right? right? Like travel things like retirement. I heard this. I didn't create this, but somebody broke it down in three phases, the go-go years, the slow-go years, and the no-go years. And when you're in the go-go years, right, probably in your early retirement, you've still got the energy and the physical ability to do the same things that you were doing most of your life. There's things you want to do. I encourage my clients, like make a list of some of the big trips that you want to do or things you want to accomplish and do them now while you know your health is good and you can do it. I mean, because you just yeah. don't know with your health, like even your own situation, like yeah. things can come up at any point in your life that can make it hard for you to do things that might be more physically demanding. So while you can do it, do it. Yeah. And, and, uh, 
Now, what do the no-go years look like? <laughs> I don't think we want to think about the no-go years. I, I, I get the slow-go years. I've got, yeah, like, I've got kids. You know, and, mom, and mom, mom's still puttering around the house, as they say in movies. You know, I yeah. mean, that's later in life when you're in your late 80s, 90s, if you're fortunate enough to make it to that point. I mean, most people that make it to that point, they're not doing a whole lot of traveling. I mean, right. you might, you know, there's outliers that of like my grandfather is 96 years old and he still lives on his own. He still drives, you know, full faculties. I mean, it's, he's a modern miracle and there are people like that, but there's a lot of people that even in their eighties are just really challenged to physically move around and, you know, maybe they start Mm -hmm. to lose it mentally. So it's, you never know. So, so you guys heard it first right here on the Leadership to Wealth podcast. Ryan Morrissey says that if you're in the go-go years, you need to make a list. <laughs> you need to and, go. And go. Go, go. go do those things. Um, uh, I, I'm sure every vacation resort in the world uh, will want you will want to sponsor you now and uh, That's right. hear Perfect. you talk about that I more often. I sponsorships for my podcast. So. <laughs> uh, do, do you have a podcast, right? I do, yes. Oh, you have to tell us about it. Sure. So my podcast yeah. is called Retire with Ryan. Okay. And it's a, it's a weekly podcast, about 20 minutes long, where every week I talk about different topics regarding retirement planning. And I've, hey. I just released, I think my 84th episode. So it's been almost two years. I started it in July of 2020. Oh, congratulations. What, what made you start a podcast as a wealth management uh, advisor? Yeah, I, I think I had wanted to start one for a while, but it's kind of like everything you kind of like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I never did it. And then I heard another advisor, it's his podcast, and it kind of inspired me to get going. And I just, he had a course that I took where it kind of taught you how to do a podcast and gave you some contacts. And I reached out to his, his production company and they were like, yep, you know, for like a thousand dollars a month, we'll do X number of episodes and we charge you no matter what, whether you get it to us or not. So yeah, it was a good forcing mechanism that, okay, time to record. And, you know, away I went and, and there's weeks where it's a struggle sometimes to do it and not so much to do it itself, but just like, you know, getting, getting the right content that you want to do. Um, right. But it's, it's, it's been good. Okay. We've got a couple more minutes left, uh, yeah. but so I want to, but I want to ask this since we've got a whole different direction to go down uh, because I actually started uh, this podcast right around the same time. It was okay. really, it was really off of the pandemic. People were yeah. asking me in social media, you know, what to do. And I was I was responding, talking about start a business. It's a great time while everyone's scared. And uh, and how do you do that? And I said, well, you, you know, if you don't have money, then you can start a podcast. And I don't know how to do that. OK, fine. <laughs> I'll start one and I'll yeah. show you guys. What have been some of the lessons that you've learned in doing a podcast because you're you're already a busy man sure. with a wealth management firm how do you how do you have time for a podcast and what are some of the lessons you've learned from it well i'd say you know the a good lesson i've learned was just really time blocking so for me it's like it's tuesdays i block off my entire schedule on tuesdays to deal with the podcast and part of that time is spent 
could be spent if I have a guest just, you know, doing the podcast. Um, it could be preparing for the guest, researching them, putting together like an outline of what we're going to talk about. If I'm doing a solo show, putting together my notes of what I'm going to cover. And so that's, that's been the key for me. Like early on, like I'm I did, blocking. I wasn't blocking out a day of the week and I'd find myself like I knew it was due. Cause my, for me, my podcasts are due by Wednesday evening and I'd find myself, Oh, I'm at the office late on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, my wife's calling me, where are you? <laughs> you know, I've got dinner. Oh honey, I'll be home. And you know, and, and yeah. after that happened a few times, like, all right, this can't happen anymore because it's, I, you know, it's compromising what my responsibilities at home. So I just started said, all right, to my, told my assistant, all right, Tuesdays are blocked off for now on because I need to make sure I can get this done every week. Yeah. I, I think that's brilliant. I, I honestly, it drives me crazy when people say, how do you have the time? called time management yeah exactly you got to make you know? a priority and it's so that's right yeah lock the time off that's great now i always get asked this question and so i'll pose it to you you know how do you get started what kind of cameras should you get and you know microphone do i need all this stuff and what 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 are some of your what's your advice to people on on starting a podcast well you definitely need a microphone um, but I don't, I think my microphone was like 70 or $80. This Samsung, what is this thing? Q2 or something I have. So that's a pretty inexpensive microphone you can get. I mean, my podcast, I don't record them, um, the video aspect of it. So, uh, so an I mean, audio only. So I only have audio, but yeah, I think yeah. you could use your computer if it's got a good enough camera. If not, I don't know, like what, how much is a camera? You know, a couple hundred bucks maybe. Uh, yeah, and the the better quality. I mean, I, I think mine was like two something. Okay, uh, so but but okay. I went for four uh, K. Yeah, your you ca know. your camera looks yeah. a lot better than mine, so, <laughs> so it, it was worth every penny, whatever it cost yeah. you. <laughs> um, but that's really all you need, and then the um, I think it's uh, what is this software I use to edit it? Um, Audacity is the yeah, software yeah. that I use, which is free. Yeah. Yes. And you could, you could do all your own editing. I mean, I just, the editing I do is if I say something that I miss said, you know, misspoke, or I want to add something in, like that's the editing I do. And then I, I upload the file to my pr production company and then they do the other tweaks to it. But you could do all that yourself. For me, it's just time management. I don't have the time. I mean, I could find more time, but I don't really want to. So easier yeah. for me to give it to them and then they help with the social aspect of it putting together the notes and things that go on my website and you know the tweets i can put out about the episodes and stuff like that so. <laughs> so so i i have to address this if you're listening right now and you just heard what what ryan said ryan is got his own wealth management firm i do Hard money lending, private mortgages, uh, real estate investments, developments. And we are both saying that if you are interested in doing a podcast, you can make the time. It's possible in your busy schedule to do it. And you could even do it yourself. Obviously, uh, yeah. you can leverage other people. I, I've got my producer, um, Wyatt, who uh, cast Flex Media, shout out. Um, and uh, you can have other people assist you in it, but it's completely doable even if you have a busy schedule. Yeah, I mean, I was told like when I started, the key is consistency. 
whatever the frequency of your show is, you really need to keep that up or else yeah. you're going to have a drop off in your audience. Yeah. So, you know, for me, like that forcing mechanism is knowing that I'm going to get charged no matter what, if I do the episode. And I also don't want to let my audience down at the same time. Yeah. So whatever you're going to commit to, you need to find your own forcing mechanism to yeah. make sure that you stay on it. Cause you don't want to have, as they call it, you know, podcast fade or, you know, you start it, yeah. do like five episodes and then no, no one ever hears from you again. Um, <laughs> that could be fine if that's all you yeah. want, but if you want to keep going, you got to figure something out. Time blocking is definitely a key component in that as well. Okay. So here's, here's the big question because, and, and I really want to ask this with regards to this from you, because you are talking to people about investment all the time. Why invest your time in a podcast? Well, for me, um, it's also helpful because I have clients that ask me things. So rather than me typing 20 emails about the same subject, I can just record a podcast episode and say, hey, go listen to this. Right. And then it also, a lot of the content is evergreen in the sense that things, you know, tax laws and things might change, but other things might not. And then I can just, I have this content that I can push out if it's relevant or if someone has a question about something, I could say, hey, go listen to this episode I had and you can learn about health savings accounts or 401ks, whatever it is. So it's really helpful, I think, to have that content for people to access. Wow. So you can really use it as a business tool to be able to leverage. You don't have to have the same conversation every time a client yep. can, you know, a client or a potential client can go listen to uh, your content without having to pay you money. And, yeah. uh, and then based on that, they can, they can make a better decision to be able to come back to you and they're using their time and your time to the best of its ability. Yeah. I mean, for me, like I, I hope it's another marketing channel. I guess time will tell. Um, yeah. I mean, I can, I know that I've gotten a few clients from the podcast, but you know, it's been a lot of time and energy to get those couple clients. Um, so it's definitely not worth it if I start calculating how much time I've spent, but right. because of the evergreen nature of a lot of the content, it will continue to, to live on. I think that's a, a kind of a compounding effect that happens where, you know, five years from now, I might say, oh, you know, in, in the last year, I've gotten 10 clients from the podcast. And whereas in the first couple of years, I got two because, yeah. you know, it's it's out there and the listenership grows. I'm up to like 1800 downloads a month at this point. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's 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 been at that level for the last like three months. So it yeah. kind of goes in waves. It seems to go in like three or 400 download increments where like I was stuck yeah. at like 1200 for a while. And then I just yeah. jumped up to like 1800 and yeah. And, and, um, that's, that's huge. When you think about it, you're spending that little bit amount of time every week and you've got 1800 people. How well, it could be of some of the days? same people, but right. 1800 yeah. times somebody pushed play on one of my episodes. Yeah. They might not have listened yes. to the whole thing, but they clicked play. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, one of the biggest things that I talk to people about when it comes to uh, podcasts, especially if you're in some type of industry where you have uh, visibility, I the the ability to be able to tell a potential client and potential investor something like that, go 
go check me out. I'm out there. I'm not hiding. I'm not in some back room. I'm I'm about as public as as you can get. And so sure. there is that, you know, you've been doing it for a couple of years. I've been doing it for a couple of years. And so there is that track record and the messaging is the same from two years ago to exactly. Now yeah. My tune hasn't changed in what I believe in and you know, it's not going yeah. to the, the, the rules in the, of the game might change, but how I approach them isn't going to change. Yeah. Yeah. The, it really can really establish a lot of credibility. And for people that are in business and you're, you're, you're wanting to uh, be able to establish some credibility, there's, uh, huge value in in doing it. I I'm I love it. I love it. It can now we we've kind of gone over time here, so it's I want right. to give mean, you an opportunity to yeah. talk a little bit about um, what's next for you, and uh, and then we'll get to how uh, how people. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I'm I'm continuing to grow my business, so I help like a like 120 families right now. Still have the capacity to take on more, and so yeah. continuing to take on more families as they they seek me out, and you know, continuing. How, how to, do you, yeah? How does a family know? How does someone know that they should be reaching out to you? Well, it'd definitely be somebody fifty and over who's you know focused on getting help with retirement planning, and yeah. so that would be first and foremost. And then you know we'd have a meeting, usually a twenty minute phone call, discuss what they're looking for make sure that we're the right fit. And then from there, we could talk about how we could work together. Mm. There's there's really two options. One is that if they have assets that they're looking for us to manage, we can take them over and help them with that. Or if somebody's looking for financial planning only, or that's really what's most appropriate, then we can help them with that as well. And we do that like on a, on a flat fee or we'll, we'll quote them a fee to work together for the next year to really get their retirement plan in the best order it can be in. And you know, help them right. get everything nailed down. Right. Um, so you you can definitely take on some more clients. You're you're enjoying doing that right now. You can see yourself doing that for a while. How do people get a hold of you? Sure. Well, the, the they can go to my podcast website. It's retire with Ryan. So retire with R Y A N dot com. And that'll, that takes you to my main company website also. But from there, you can check out podcast episodes and you can click on the um, work with us um, page. And from there, you can fill out some information and we can reach out to you. Or you can actually write on there, schedule a time to talk to see if we're a fit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the, and the universal question that, that uh, people always ask is they want to know why is this important? Why? is this important for me? Why is financial planning important for me? <laughs> well, I, I mean, unfortunately, all of us have a certain amount of time we can work, right? And you're, you start out in life and your, your human capital, right, is what you're, what you're banking on. You don't have any other capital. And what you're supposed to be doing is as your working years are diminishing, right, you're supposed to be building up some assets that can then replace your paycheck when it goes away. So if you don't do that, you're going to probably live a pretty unenjoyable retirement, I would imagine, because if you're just living on Social Security, that's usually not enough to cover you know, enough bills that you're probably covering with your working. So you need to be doing something to set something aside, whether it's in the stock market and real estate, right? whatever 
is most appropriate for you to make sure there's going to be something else there for you. Yeah. Wow. Making sure there's something else there, knowing uh, how to retire when you want to retire. And uh, yeah. that's the reason that you want to reach out to Ryan. And uh, Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show today, uh, sharing with us, going in a bunch of different directions and uh, <laughs> and even making space uh, for my dog on the show today. So, what is your dog's uh, name, by the way, Neil? Uh, so his name is, his name is Onyx, like the okay, stone. Cool. Um, but I actually call him Bodhi. Uh, okay, for those right. of Confuse you that him. remember the 1991 point break movie with Patrick Swayze. Oh yeah. 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 And, uh, his name was cool. Bodhi and, uh, he talked a little bit about dog psychology. And so it, he made me interested in dogs from 1991. So, yeah, I like that. So movie. that's my nickname for him is yeah. Bodhi. Cool. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and if you want recommendation on dogs, I'll let you know. And uh, All right, you let me know. You guys can get a dog out. yourself. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. All the best uh, on your uh, podcast. And uh, we look forward to uh, hearing more from you as you guys wade through um, your current president, as we as we wade through our yeah. current prime minister and uh and as we wade through our investment worlds and helping people through that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Okay. Thanks, Neil.